All right, I'm recording. My kill bites are coming up, but there is a lag. Uh, okay, we'll do our best. I'm a wizard with editing tools, Brian. I know what I'm doing. Welcome to episode 351 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Bach. Welcome back for another episode, Brian. I feel like we broke the three, you know, it's kind of a little bit of a somber last couple of episodes and, you know, but, but we passed a major milestone last week of 350. So we're on the other side, 351 now. Yeah, I guess. What's the next major milestone on the eight point grid scale? 384 probably. 384, correct. Mm-hmm. I know my shit, dude. I know those numbers. You like, know your shit. It's part of my <laughs> being now. <laughs> yeah, you're like, you know those viral YouTube videos of math teachers like uh-huh. solving equations really quickly? Uh-huh. You're like that, but just divide by eight. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, it's more like the, the uh, it's more like those kids you see who can like, you give them a word and they can say it backwards, right? Yeah. It's sure. just about as useless as that. <laughs> Well, it's useful in your day-to-day, I guess. Yeah, I found the one profession that it matters in. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Well, let's get into the episode. We have uh, some supporters this week. Uh, yeah. First of all, our, our Golden Ratio supporter is Float. Once again. More than 3,000 of the world's top design teams, including BuzzFeed, MetaLab, and Hulu, use Float to plan their projects and schedule their team's time. Float is the most accurate tool for planning your project resources and uh, scheduling your team's time. You should learn more. Go to float.com slash design details. Great looking product. Yeah. And uh, go check it out. Thanks, Float. We also have some new very important pixels this week. Huge shout outs to Shafali Netka, Darwin Witt, Lao Tzu, Jason Wu, and Christian Lund. Uh, I think I did it. <laughs> I don't know if I did it. You're... You know, you're lucky because the internet sucks so bad that you cut out and got all robot-y and, and like broke up during that entire thing. So I heard none of your pronunciations of those names. So they're probably all wrong, but I didn't hear them. So I can't make fun of you for getting it wrong. So let's just assume you did it right. I just assume I did it right, Marshall. You'll catch it in post and you'll shake your head. <laughs> yeah, we'll just assume flawlessness. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. All right. Well, thank you everyone for supporting the show. Uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. If you don't know, we are a listener-supported podcast, which means that uh, you, dear listener, can support us, helping make content every week. We've been doing this for years now, week in, week out. And uh, the way it works is if you go to patreon.com slash design details, you can support us starting at just a dollar a month. And with that support, you get access to an exclusive segment in every episode, which is called the sidebar. Sidebar. In the sidebar, we share a design story, talk about a new product, give a little design tip or a cool resource. It's like cool things, but design related always. Yeah. In every episode. So if you want access to full episodes of Design Details, go to patreon.com slash design details and get all those sidebars for your ears. Just a buck a month. Patreon.com slash design details. All right. We got a little bit of follow-up. So we heard from, this one's actually a little bit old because we skipped a couple weeks, um, but we heard from Ola Drachel, who says, you guys inspired me to search for my old designs from 2003. Take a look. We have a link to a Medium post called Good and Bad Design Memories. It starts out saying, you know, I got inspired 
by Brian and Marshall from Design Details to search and post my old designs. Brace yourself because, and I scrolled through here, there's some good stuff. There is some like, yes, 2003 fucking stock photo, uh-huh. chunky, chunky skeuomorphic tabs, you know, all the way. I don't know. I don't know how recent the the last post in here is, but I love people sharing their shame. We got some 2003 web design. I love it. So thank you, Ola, for sharing your your designs with us. Yeah, thank you for sharing. That's uh, a brave thing you've done, and we appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> for anyone who wants to look, we'll have a link in the show notes to this Medium post uh, and the tweet. I'm clapping for it as we speak. We also had a little bit of follow-up on your cool thing from last week, Jacob Collier. Yeah, Walter Camaro. Camaro? Oh, I hope it's pronounced Camaro, like a like a Chevy Camaro. Anyways, uh, <laughs> Walter Camaro, I'm just going to say it like that because it's cooler, um, responded to, to me about the Jacob Collier thing. He said, very cool thing, Marshall. And if you're not into deep, nerdy music theory, here's something a bit more pop without diluting the genius. And he linked to... Uh, performance of All I Need with Mahalia and Ty Dolla Sign. I think it was at least shown on the Jimmy Kimmel show, but he recreated the song uh, with a bunch of noises from things in his bathroom and performed it in his bathroom. And there's some fun uh, social distancing music video creation going on here. But uh, it's good. Like there is there's production value in this video. It was fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Good shit. So th- thanks for sharing that, Walter. And yeah. Um, Jacob Collier, I think some of his stuff is hard to digest, but he also makes some good pop stuff that's real easy to listen to, and this is one of them. So thanks for sharing. Okay, and our last piece of follow-up. So uh, just to uh, continue to address what's going on in the world and uh, follow up on our Black Lives Matter episode, uh, I heard from listener Rowan Adams, and he hit me up about doing more outside of the show. And uh, so that kind of culminated in him writing a a medium post uh, kind of directed to white people um, about how to acknowledge systemic racism and, and think about things uh, and our, and our place in that system and uh, what we can do about things without putting that burden on our non-white friends. So I would highly recommend reading through this blog post. It's got some great links at the end for causes to support and petitions to sign reading material like, books and poems and stuff. And there's a link to a Telegram group if you would like to join that and join kind of a, a community of people uh, talking about this thing that is so important for us to not forget about and not stop talking about. Yeah, I think the thing that stood out the most for me is like it's just not enough to say that you're outraged. It's not enough to just tweet things. It's not enough to post a black square on social media. Like those aren't actually addressing the underlying problem. Like, sure, I think it's great to elevate the voices of people and retweet and bring attention to issues. But I think what Rowan's saying here is like, you have to go deeper. Like, you have to, I, th- I think, what, what's the saying now, Marshall? It's like, it's not enough to be not racist. You have to be actively anti racist. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, sorry, I, I, I never said the name of this article, but it's, it's called Complicit by Default, which is, I think, what you're getting at here is like, unless you do something, you're complicit in the system that you benefit from actively or inactively, right? Yeah. So just as a small tidbit, I I don't know. I think this is up to everybody to do on their own time. What's been kind of cool is seeing a couple companies like, uh, I know Square and Twitter are getting, I guess technically it's a holiday, but they're going to have Juneteenth, which is June 19th off. It is a holiday. It's a celebration day. Okay. It's a celebration day. Okay. You're right. You're right. And we're doing the same at GitHub. It's It's not a day off. It's more like, 
there is an intent behind what we want everybody to be doing on this day. Mm-hmm. So for people who don't know, June 19th is the day when the last state in the Confederacy was told that uh, slavery had been abolished by the Emancipation Proclamation, which actually happened two years earlier. Anyways, it was in Texas. It took a while for the Union soldiers to get there. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it was in uh, 1865. June 19th was the, the last day you know, officially ending slavery. So it's a celebration, and uh, it's not like a national holiday. But anyway, so some companies are taking some time off. And and the way I think GitHub is positioning this, which I think is cool, is it's not a day off, but we want everybody to read, listen, talk. Like, spend your days educating yourself or doing something active in in the cause. At, At the very least, you know, like learning and reading and talking about the experiences that people who don't look like you have had every day since 1865 Mm -hmm. uh, how little things have changed so Mm -hmm. uh, if you're listening to this you know i guess this week if you're a a first week listener or sometime in the future we'll have again links in the show notes for things to do books to read articles to read podcasts to listen to and and places to give so go check out the show notes all righty let's get into a listener question brian okay this listener question comes from Matthew Cool. Hey, Matt Cool. Two things. Matt Cool is a very important pixel from last week. Uh-huh. But also, Marshall, you're not going to fucking believe what his middle initial is. Oh, oh, I know, Brian. His middle initial is B. His name is Matthew B. Cool. And I couldn't think of a better name. Matthew B. Jo- maybe Johnny cool. B. Good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... Brian B. Levin would be kind of cool as well. <laughs> Basically, B as an, a middle initial is pretty much the most flexible and accommodating of middle initials. So anyways, Matt, be cool. Great job on your name. Uh, Matt asks, what are some not as obvious accessibility wins we can look for early on as we move into hi-fi prototyping? Thinking about things going beyond just checking for good color contrast, font size, touchable space, etc. So... Marshall, the way I thought we could talk about this, I think it's an interesting question, but it kind of goes, for me, it felt like it immediately just became like, what is accessibility? Like, how do we think about accessibility? Um, but I thought the framing here was interesting. Like, yeah, basically, what are accessibility gut checks? Like, before you actually start building the thing or getting into the pixel perfect phase where you're, you know, specking out something for engineering, are there things that you could be doing to gut check that you've designed something that is accessible? Mm-hmm. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, we took some notes and we have a little bit of an outline that we can just talk through and uh, hopefully this will give you some ideas for things to do before getting into the weeds on the pixels, thinking about accessibility. Okay, yeah. So um, this this first one's pretty near and dear to my heart, which is uh, to know thy platform, Brian. Know thine platform, Good and well. Andrew... Wait, 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 hang on. Hmm. As you said that, it made me think we need like a Ten Commandments. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, uh, so for the first thing to do is to know the platform that you're designing on. Android is different from iOS, is different from web, is different from mobile web. Know where your product is going to live. Android has the material guidelines, very well documented uh, set of design guidelines that help you understand how material works. Same thing is true of iOS with the Apple HIG. And the web has a bunch of different APIs that you will become familiar with over time. 
but ultimately, yeah, know about all of the things that are available to you on all of those different systems. Not only just the HIG, but also the APIs that you have access to. Do you have access to voiceover or reducing motion or blur or contrast? Like, what are the tools at your disposal? Yeah, I just as a gut check before this episode, I went and reread the HIG and material accessibility guidelines. Not the whole HIG, just the accessibility section. And it takes like, I don't know, if you're paying attention, maybe 30 minutes to read both. So obviously a lot longer to master and internalize, but at the very least 30 minutes to like get a pretty high level overview of things to consider and the ways the platform accommodates different accessibility features is a very high impact way to spend 30 minutes. So start mm-hmm. there. Yeah. So from those docs, I think we can kind of derive the rest of our outline here. And I think there's a few buckets to think about in my mind. And again, accessibility is a big, big area. I do not know everything. And we're trying to focus specifically on gut check type things. Okay, so here's my first bucket is space and motion. So you got to remember that motion is a meaningful part of the design process. And the way something moves in and out of a frame, the way views transition, all of these inform a user the way something might work. There are also accessibility settings to reduce the amount of motion that you might have in your interface. So it's worth considering, how are people going to navigate in and out of your app? How are elements going to come in and out? How are they gonna react to touch and different state changes when reduce motion is on? How are you gonna keep the clarity when you don't have motion as like this really fundamental design signifier? The second bucket for me is thinking about how you're gonna handle different media types. So different apps, you know, you might have an emphasis on text or video or imagery. And all of those different media types need different accessibility features. So if you're working with Mm -hmm. images, primarily, you're going to want alt labels. If you're working with videos, you need to think about captions or transcripts. And if you're working primarily with text, uh, there's a lot of stuff here, but you need to think about like how the text will be read and interpreted and interacted with. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more, more about text here in a second because that's the hardest one. But like for or in my opinion, it's the more, more complex one. But anyway, so what what kind of media will you be working with? And what are the underlying accessibility features that will make that media work for, for people of all abilities? Okay, so uh, another bucket after that would be uh, you, like the shape of the UI, right? So there's a real quick one here, and this, this is probably an obvious one, but uh, get it right out of the way. Avoid using light font weights. Um, <laughs> in general, unless it's like gigantic. Yeah, unless it is an enormous font, like where each line is like two or three pixels thick, then you're fine. But like, yeah, yeah. Avoid light font weights. Make that shit readable. Another thing to think about is uh, screen readers. So uh, when you have a when you have a screen reader, one the first thing you need to know about is like focus order. Like when somebody's using a screen reader, it's going to cycle through the different aspects of the of the page one at a time and you need to understand how that focus order works and arrange it in a way that makes sense to the user and is is most usable on top of that you need to think about what things are outside of the visual cues that that need to be considered like uh, auditory cues, haptics. If you're a Patreon of ours, you uh, would know that we talked about haptics a little bit in the sidebar today. Uh, but also different inputs like voice and touch and keyboard and different outputs like like the screen reader. Like some things, there are some things that the screen reader doesn't need to see, right? You, and you should consider what aspects of your design 
could and should be skipped. So ornamental images or copy that is not necessary to be read or glyphs that are only there for structural purposes or all of these, these are really easy to forget about when you're doing an initial design. Yeah, I think the focus order one for me trips me up the most because it's like the most clear example for me, I think this is in the, the HIG is like, imagine you have two photos side by side and then you have captions below them. Like you have to understand that the screen reader will read aloud that there is an image there before it ever gets to the caption. And so you can mm -hmm. imagine having similar interface elements like that where someone might pan over like the meat of a thing and then get to some supplementary content after the fact. And it, you need to be aware that that supplementary content is going to come after the fact and it shouldn't be like the thing that makes the meat or that, that primary element clear or understandable. It should be supplementary. All right, the last bucket that came to mind for me was just words. And this was getting back to text. Like words are hard. Yep. And I think the step that I struggle with a lot and I know a lot of designers struggle with and is where you should be gut checking the entire way through shipping a product is, is the copywriting in your application clear? Like clear copywriting is, in my opinion, an accessibility feature I don't know if feature is the right word, but clear copywriting lends itself towards a more accessible design. So before you get super high-fi, start nudging those pixels. Like, it, are the words even correct? Like, before your button looks good, is the button label the correct label, right? Uh -huh. Like, order of operations here. Mm -hmm. uh, but also with words, interacting with text is uh, complicated, and people interact with text in a lot of ways. We've already talked about screen readers, uh, but there's also people want to interact with text. Like on the web, people might want to like select it and copy and paste it. Same with on their phone, they might want to like touch it and hold and copy some text. Mm -hmm. But not every piece of text in an interface has that uh, ability to be interactive. So you could imagine like uh, when selectable text is links, and if you like click select some text and then mouse up it actually just clicks the link instead Ugh. of understanding that you were trying to select yeah. text oh man another thing that came to mind for me here is one of my favorite little tricks and i think it's one that is uh easily missed and i think it's becoming more recent where if you're using timestamps a lot of applications will say a relative timestamp so instead mm. of saying you know june 6th at 7 p.m uh it'll just say two hours ago for example. Mm -hmm. And that relative time is quite useful in interfaces. It helps build some idea of like recency and context lists better. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes you actually just want to know the timestamp. And so uh, GitHub does this really well. Like on comments, it'll say, you know, posted two hours ago. But if you hover over the timestamp, it has a title attribute that is just the full raw timestamp, you know, month, day, year, hour, AM, PM, the whole shebang. Mm -hmm. So that if you need access to that extra metadata, you can just hover and, and get that. So if you're using things like relative time, uh, there's probably other examples here where you could think of like the addition of a title attribute or an alt attribute would make the thing more clear for people who are looking for a little bit more specificity. Speaking of specificity, man, this is a hard one for me, but when should you truncate text? Because truncating text can be a very frustrating experience for people who are trying to navigate a page and understand uh, you know, the contents of a page, especially mm -hmm. if they have larger font sizes enabled on their operating system, mm -hmm. such that there's just fewer characters to render. So let's say 
you are designing some lists and those lists you say, oh, we can just truncate it at two lines. That's enough words. But maybe someone comes along and they have their font size turned all the way up to max and two lines of text is like two words. This is just a trade-off and you should be very conscious about when you are going to truncate content. When is it appropriate to truncate? And I think that's going to be more situational, but it's a good gut check. Where have you truncated in your mocks? And is that really going to scale across all the different ways people might expect to infer information from that? So truncation. And then uh, finally, okay, words. Uh, words can be laid out left to right in our Latin languages. But in other languages, words are read from right to left. And so this is a nice gut check to think about how will your interface work in a different language that doesn't necessarily go left to right or even a different language that just has longer strings. I think localization is a nice design gut check. Like run a Google Translate on some of your strings for German or Russian mm-hmm. and versus, you know, like Chinese or something. And like just compare some some interface elements. I think what's the most famous example here? There's like some application, might have been eBay or PayPal or like some giant e-commerce provider where a button when it was rendered in German, truncated at a very critical part to the point where like a pay button basically couldn't be read clearly. (laughs) I can't remember the exact example, but it was something where a German word got cut off at a very inopportune point in the, in the word and it dropped, you know, conversion rates dramatically and the business lost money. So yeah, I think the rule is you're supposed to assume whatever your string is, assume you need 30% more space than that to account for all the other languages on average. Uh, we'll also throw in, I thought that the material spec on this was particularly useful. They call it bidirectionality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll link in the show notes, but they have a big long document on bidirectionality, which is basically like in a right to left language, what else besides the words should be flipped? Mm-hmm. For example, uh, one thing that if you had asked me before this, I guess I wouldn't have really known is like, do you show a progress bar from right to left in a right to left language? Like if you're loading a YouTube video, when I see it, it goes left to right. But if you flip it, should it go right to left? The answer is no, No, but that's not necessarily obvious. Like what should flip? So bi-directionality is something good to learn about. So yeah, that was a bunch of thoughts. Hopefully that was useful. Uh, Matt, be cool. Hopefully that that helped you uh, get started on your hi-fi prototypes and, and to think about the right things. I don't know. Accessibility is big. We, we just did like a 15-minute dump and calling it a day, but uh, I, we'll have links in the show notes for you to dive deeper if you are so inclined. Okay. Let's get into some cool things, Brian. I think it's my turn to go first this time, right? Hit me. All right. I've mentioned a channel on YouTube before called Noclip. They do uh, video game documentaries on developers and kind of behind the scenes of how games are made. Because I subscribe to them, videos that they make get suggested to me in recommendations. And their most recent video is an interview with a guy who made this game called Dwarf Fortress. Have you ever heard of it, Brian? I've never heard of this. Okay, it was on like the edges of my radar, but I didn't really know. I just knew it was a game. There was a kind of a roguelike game, meaning that like every time you play through, it's different, procedurally generated, blah, blah, blah. I knew that much, but that was about the extent of it until I saw this interview. In this interview, I'll try to keep this short, but but this is what hooked me. So he's talking about the game and he's talking about bug reports that they get in, in this game. And as it sounds, it's like you, you're, it's, a, it's a dwarf 
kind of fortress building game. There's a world generation thing and there's all this history and everything that's laid out when you create a new world and you kind of are indirectly telling these dwarves how to like not die from the environment and everything that's around them and, and to succeed as a civilization. Okay, so you get these bug reports, uh, he says, and the bug report is like, there's all of these dead cats covered in vomit in my tavern. What's going on, right? So this is really interesting. Like, yeah, why would there be dead cats in these taverns? They have... So the thing that became apparent to me as he starts talking is that there are all of these different systems set up in Dwarf Fortress. And the thing that makes it so interesting to me is that like it's a simulation of the world and it's pretty fucking good. It might be like one of the best simulation games there ever is, but to look at it, it looks like absolute shit. It looks like a game made in 1983. It's all ASCII characters and it's like, impossible it does not hold the user's hand at all it is almost impossible to use but once you get past the kind of shock of seeing this thing that's totally unparsable there's so much underlying complexity okay so there's all these systems that define the world down to the smallest detail so go back to this bug report so there's there's these cats dying in taverns How, why are they dying in taverns well the answer is they eventually realize that, okay, when, it, when a dwarf is drinking in a tavern and he gets a call to go do a job, he empties his inventory like, oh, I, I got to leave right now, drops his mug on the floor, which triggers the spilling algorithm uh-huh. or whatever, the uh-huh. spilling routine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so the, the container is emptied on the floor and now, there is, now there's beer on the floor. Well, the, the developers like cats, so there's cats in the game, right? And they, they follow you around. The cats want to be around people that they like. So often they're in taverns and they have wayfinding and everything. So, so they're in the taverns. There's beer on the floor. And they're walking around and they're getting the beer on their paws. Now, in, in a, an unrelated thing, they're having this problem where there was like, as part of the splattering routine, like when you get into a fight, blood gets splattered all over the place and you get blood all over your clothes or all over your face or whatever. And, and characters are getting blood in their eyes and like they're walking around with blood in their eyes all the time. Like, oh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We have eyelids. Our eyelids need to clean the eyes. So they had to like add eyelids into the game of like, okay, <laughs> these characters have eyelids. And, the, and, uh-huh. the, and because they added this to clean your eyes, they're like, well, let's, let's expand this cleaning thing. Where else can it apply? Well, we have cats. Cats lick their body to clean themselves. So they gave cats the ability to clean themselves. Well, so now these cats are walking through alcohol and then licking their paws, which uh, which when you clean yourself and use a mouth part, that triggers the ingestion routine. Oh so my these cats, they eventually re- uh, realized that all because of all of these emergent modular systems, they were creating this emergent aspect of these cats dying because they would walk through the alcohol, they'd lick their paw, they'd get drunk, they'd get alcohol poisoning because they set a variable wrong. They're like, this will never happen. So they set a variable. <laughs> yeah, Every time yeah, they yeah. lick their paws, they're drinking an entire mug of human size or like <laughs> dwarf size mug of ale. Yeah. They were, and then, which was triggering like the alcoholic uh, routine, like going through all these things which eventually ended in like cardiac arrest or whatever. So all these cats were dying in taverns. So he told this story of this bug report. I'm like, I need to learn about this game. This sounds fucking amazing. Again, it's imparsable. You look at it, it's so hard to read. There have been additional packs released of like people modifying the ASCII characters so it's a little bit easier to identify what's going on on screen and there's like isometric versions because it's like 
this Z level, there's, there's depth to the world. And anyways, because of all of these systems, there's this emergent storytelling that happens or that can happen. And there's a YouTube channel called Krug Smash where this guy plays Dwarf Fortress and basically plays it like it's, a, it's an emergent storytelling game where he kind of does the things he does. But because everything is tracked in the game down to like, you know, the tissues and flesh on every character and the things that have happened to them, the things that they remember. And sometimes they'll get sad because they remember something bad that happened to them. And like, there's all of these systems, you know, interacting with each other that like, you can kind of just let the game happen. And these really interesting stories start to tell themselves of recurring characters that interact with each other and like battles that are overcome and revenge that it's had. And so he kind of narrates these stories as he plays the game. It's really well done. Um, I'm I'm listening through the Scorch Fountain series right now. It's about a, a dwarf fortress that's built within a volcanic mountain. Okay. Hence Scorch Fountain. But it's very, very good. Sorry, I talked about that for far too long. I tried to keep it short, but it's so fucking interesting, Brian. Hopefully I, some of this enthusiasm is rubbing off on you. This is intensely fascinating. I'm clicking around the website. I don't know that I could play this. Yeah, it's terrible. But I'm going to dig in. I want to watch this video. So the developer has joked that the actual players are the YouTube viewers and that the players of the game are actually just his colleagues, right? Uh huh. <laughs> that's a nice way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's a cool thing. Okay. I, that scratches an itch I have around just like good bug hunting stories where non-obvious things create non-obvious side effects that just sort of cascade down into some weird glitch uh-huh. and, and and it must have felt so satisfying for them to discover the actual reason like to trace that dead cat all the way back up to the inventory issue like that's so fascinating right yeah yeah cool thing all right my cool thing is something that you are familiar with marshall but i mm-hmm. have just finally become familiar with it so you and hey. i went through like a little bit of a sci-fi kick together last year when we mm-hmm. read the Bobaverse. You're always ahead of me. You always, because you do the audiobooks, you, you crank through these things. Uh, but we both enjoyed the Bobaverse. And right after Bobaverse, you moved on to a book called Children of Time. Mm-hmm. And I had ordered it. I've had this sitting on my bookshelf for forever. It is a chunky book. It's 600 pages. Yeah, sizable. Uh, I, I, remember, I remember when I got it delivered, I was like, Ooh, I don't know if I'm going to read this. Like, <laughs> great reviews, but 600 pages for a sci-fi—I don't know. So you went to you, you like you, it was recommended to you. You you found it online. You paid yeah. money for it. You ordered it. You waited for it to yeah. show up. It showed up. You unwrapped the box. You brought it out, and you're like, "Yeah, I don't think I'm going to read this." The size was intimidating, and I'm, okay. I'm only saying this for the other people who are listening who might be so inclined to buy this, and they will go through the exact same emotional roller coaster of like, "Oh, that book sounds awesome." Oh boy, it weighs four pounds. <laughs> you know what? Um, like the average book is about eight hours, give or take, on Audible. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, like 24 hours isn't a whole lot more intimidating than eight hours, right? But a book that's three times the size of a normal book is real fucking intimidating. So argument for audiobooks. Sure, sure. Okay. Well, anyways, so Children of Time is my recommendation this week. I just finished it finally, had some good downtime. And I'm so glad I did. I just ordered the sequel because you said that you liked the sequel even better. Better, yeah, yeah. But this was a very fun world-building sci-fi story that takes place over long, long periods of time, Mm -hmm. uh, lending to the name Children of Time. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how to 
is there a synopsis that doesn't really give anything away about like the main characters? It's apocalyptic. It's about the survival of the human race in the the outer reaches of space, looking for a new Earth. Let's just say that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a ship full of people looking for a new Earth. At the very beginning of the book, something terrible happens and um, yeah. sets the events of the the book into motion. But there's like basically oh, three main storylines that you're following. Right. You're kind of jumping back between these three main storylines. I liked one of the storylines more than the other two. And that's why I liked the the second book a lot better is because I kind of liked everything that was happening in the second book, regardless of which oh, viewpoint we were at yeah. in any given time. So Okay, so then I, I know which story which storyline you liked the best. I'm guessing yes. you liked the one on planet. Yes. Yes. Okay. All right, we'll try no spoilers, but if you like sci-fi, give this one uh, a read. So that's Children of Time. Whew, Marshall. Yeah. We can't help ourselves. We we sat down and said we wanted to do a quick app, and here we are. You know, I still feel like we talked really quickly. I, feel, I still feel like we rushed through everything, and it still took an hour. I don't understand how time works. Anyways, this <laughs> yeah. has been episode 351 of Design Details. We hope you enjoyed it. Let us know what you thought. We're on Twitter at Design Details FM. If you enjoyed this and uh, aren't subscribed to the show and want access to the full episode and full episodes going forward and, and the whole backlog of, of episodes, go to patreon.com slash design details. We're a listener supported show and your contributions help us make this every single week. So starting for just a buck a month, you get access to full episodes, that sidebar segment. Oh yeah. Uh, we hope you'll do it. Patreon.com slash design details. If you have your own listener question, go to github.com slash specfm. You'll find the design details repo and you can open an issue for us. Thanks again to Matt B. Cool for this week's listener question. If you need more podcasts for your ears, go to spec.fm. That's our podcast network for designers and developers just, just like, like you. In the meantime, just uh, follow us on Twitter, tweet at us. We love hearing from you. Send us messages. We try and respond to as many of them as we can, uh, but certainly we, we definitely read everything. So mm-hmm. keep them coming. We really appreciate it, and we'll catch you next week. Bye. Can I say something real quick? Yes. You almost always are wearing that hoodie when we do this podcast, like uh-huh. pretty much without fail. Uh-huh. You wear that hoodie. And I've never mentioned this before, but there's a visual illusion that happens with that hoodie. See, you have a square logo on your chest. It's a black field with like white lettering that says pine. The two drawstrings are also black. And typically, the way those drawstrings land, they line up basically perfectly with that square. Uh huh. And because I'm looking at you on a webcam, you're kind of cut off at the chest. It looks like you're wearing the tiniest apron every time that I talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, maybe that's our next merch idea: <laughs> <laughs> the tiniest apron hoodie, a tiny little design details apron. <laughs> Do you see what I'm talking about, though? Yes, and I love it. And it kind of, like kind of like the bibs you get at like a Red Lobster, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, Except yeah. this one's black and built into my hoodie. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> I love it.